0: content content Ah, that's out of my vocabulary Ooh, what does it mean to be content contentment i don't know just to be satisfied i guess being satisfied with something find uh i guess an inner peace with yourself being uh happy with who you are not let your wants outweigh what you have i guess it means to be happy not really want anything else i guess Uh, i guess it means um all right with wait how you are being OKAY WITH WHAT'S GOING ON. NOT NECESSARILY BEING uh, ENTIRELY HAPPY ABOUT IT, LIKE HAVING A POSITIVE SENSE, BUT ALSO NOT HAVING A NEGATIVE SENSE. YOU'RE NOT WORRIED ABOUT um, WHAT OTHER PEOPLE THINK ABOUT YOU. CONTENTMENT IS HAVING THE LORD ON YOUR SIDE. ARE YOU A CONTENT PERSON? Am i CONTENT? NO, I DON'T THINK I'M CONTENT. NO, I'M NOT CONTENT. NO, I DON'T THINK I'M VERY CONTENT. <laughs> I DON'T THINK I'M VERY CONTENT, ACTUALLY. SOME DAYS, YOU KNOW, I'M HAPPIER THAN OTHERS. ARE YOU CONTENT WITH YOUR life? Not at the moment. Mm, sometimes. I would consider myself a very content person. I'd say I'm yeah. I think I could be a better person sometimes. Is there anything that could happen to make you more content with your life? There's always things that can make you more content with your life. Probably just more money right now. Finding a, I guess, this perfect soulmate and all those you know stereotypical things. Get a good job, provide for my daughter and myself without having to rely on everybody else. What is your source of contentment? Uh. Just feeling complete in myself. Try to keep a positive outlook. That makes me content. Having my bills paid makes it a lot easier to be content. Some material possessions, self. What's the source of your contentment? I suppose my mother. Just following my emotions, sort of a transcendentalist, romanticist. Why do you think most people are not content with their lives? I have no clue. I don't know, there's just something missing, I guess. Honestly, I mean, I think that they're searching. We live in a materialistic society, and everybody thinks that when they get the bigger car or the bigger house or the nicer pool, they're going to be happy. Everybody's reaching for something. Got to have money, got to have looks, got to have all these things. People want more, more money, better cars, bigger houses. People don't really have a purpose, like a reason to get up in the morning. They don't have Jesus. They are... Uh, searching for something to fill that, that void and uh, they're not going to find it. I think a lot of people need um, Jesus just for the fulfillment in their lives. They try to fill their lives with so many so many things that just don't fill the void. could be music, could be drugs, could be anything and uh, there's no otherworldly peace that they can have. You're never going to have that satisfaction, that fulfillment unless you have him. He is... Um a lot of the contentment that people are looking for. Okay, so a bit of an older video there, but we thought that the content about being content was good. Isn't English just wonderful? Sometimes I would mess with words, Uh, but that's kind of our topic today. That is our topic today. What does it mean to be content? We've been looking at happiness and the search for happiness over these uh, few weeks, and we've discovered that the search for happiness can actually be quite elusive. It can be a little slippery. It can be also relentless and even exhausting, especially if we define happiness in a certain way. Uh, if we turn the dictionary, we discover that happiness is a pleasurable experience. And if that's the limits of our definition of happiness, then we're in trouble. Because we're go- just going to go from one experience to the next experience to the next experience, always seeking the next high Christine's been clearing out our closets at home, and uh, she's discovered a number of things from our past. And yesterday, she discovered my certificate for skydiving. And uh, just proof that two days before Kira was born, I jumped out of a plane at 12,500 feet. Did it make me happy when I landed and was still alive? Absolutely. I was very, very happy to be alive. But sometimes we seek experience after experience, and it becomes costly, it becomes elusive, it becomes exhausting. So we have to deepen our pursuit of happiness. Instead of avoiding it or saying it's not worth it, I think we need to deepen it. We need to deepen our understanding of happiness, and that's what we're trying to do through this series. Because we want to go beyond the happiness of the moment. And I do hope that each one of us has many happy moments. Happy moments are great. Happy experiences are good. But we need to go deeper. We need to go to the happiness of the mundane. That even at work, when we drag ourselves out of bed on Monday morning and drive into the office, or take care of our kids, or do the lawn, or do the dishes, whatever it is in our mundane lives, that we find some sense of happiness. And even if we're biblical, searching for happiness, even in misery, even in difficult situations, is there a place for happiness? That's been part of our quest. And so in order to get to that, I think we have to add certain words, words like satisfaction, words like purpose, words like meaning, or like the biblical word, joy. What does it mean to have joy in the Lord? So we've been reflecting on the Apostle Paul uh, because he has a lot to say about joy. He's the one that said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Now on paper, Paul didn't have any real legitimate excuse to be happy. He didn't have this beautiful life that was comfortable. He actually gave all of that up in order to follow Jesus. And his life ended up being quite miserable. And we've covered some of this. He was shipwrecked. He was without food. He was beaten with rods. He was chased out of town. His life was, uh, he had experience with misery, didn't he? And yet he's the one that said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice. So, we want to extract a few principles of happiness from the teachings of the Apostle Paul because I think it will help us in our pursuit. So, here's principle number one that we've discovered so far. The first secret to happiness is what? Love. Pursue love. Instead of pursuing happiness or the next great experience, as wonderful as some of those experiences are, it's not sustainable. Pursue love instead. And not only loving others, that's good, that's important, that's biblical, but also being loved, to receive love, to come to the place, like Paul said, the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me, to have that personal sense that you are loved unconditionally. That's the first secret to happiness, because the first enemy of happiness is what? hate. You cannot hate and be happy. You can't hold those two things together. You really can't. I can't. I know I can't. I know I sometimes think if I hate the other person, I'm going to damage them or injure them or or get justice somehow. But when I hold hate in my heart, I cannot also be happy. It's not possible. And so the antidote to hatred is love. So pursue love. Okay, the second key to happiness, this is a pop quiz for those who are here. You can do this at home and receive your own prize. There's no prizes, by the way. But the second key to the happiness is what? Gratitude, thankfulness, practice gratitude. Pursue love, practice gratitude. Because the second enemy of happiness is greed. When we're saying, just a little more will do. And we're always pursuing that, just a little more. That's like chasing the wind, it says in the Bible. You'll never catch it. You'll never catch up with it, just a little more. And so our greed robs us of happiness. And so the antidote to greed is gratitude. And this is what Paul says, that we are to always give thanks to God the Father for everything. Always, for everything, giving thanks. Because gratitude ultimately is a response to God's grace. So there's the first two keys and the first two enemies. Here this morning is the third key, and I'm sure you'll discover many more keys to happiness. But the third enemy, actually, of happiness is envy. Envy is the third enemy of happiness. And envy displays its strength through comparison. You ever play the comparison game? When you look around and you see what other people have or what they're doing? or what they don't have if they don't have suffering. (laughs) When we compare ourselves to other people and situation, that's envy. That's the enemy of happiness. We cannot be happy and be envious of others. Andy Stanley, he has this great quote. He said, you cannot compare your way to happiness. Think of that for a moment. We cannot compare our way to happiness. Comparisons, in that sense, are not the path. It's actually a path that will lead to misery. Um, Andy Stanley goes on to say that there's always someone who is er. Not like er. There's people that are er. But there's always someone that is E-R. Er. Right? There's always someone that is richer. There's always someone who is prettier. Always someone who is skinnier always someone who is smarter, always someone who is stronger, always someone who is faster, right? And when we see these people, we say, grr, I want what they have. That's envy. That's the kind of comparison that leads to a destruction. And that kind of envy is actually the fuel for social media. I think there's a lot of great things that we use social media for. And uh, we're using it really well in youth group and our new uh, kids ministry team is using it well but a lot of what drives social media is envy, because we want to show to everyone when we're on holiday in Mexico that we are happier than they are. It's another err, isn't it? And so this is the comparison game. And I think it's always been the case. It's not unique to our culture. It's always been the case that our natural inclination is to compare ourselves to others And because we see others having something that we want, that person's driving my car, that person's living in my house, that person has my job, that person has my whatever, right? We make that comparison and then we feel envious because we don't feel that we're complete. Well, here's the lie. The lie is this, that you need what they have to be respectable, acceptable, and lovable. That's the lie. And we buy into it way too often. That we need what someone else has in order to be respectable, acceptable, and lovable. It's a lie. Don't believe it. We don't. That's not the path to happiness. Andy Stanley says, Discontentment fueled by comparison is dangerous. Discontentment fueled by comparison is dangerous. Now, I want to make a little exclaimer here. There is room to be discontent. I think there is a holy discontent. When God makes us no longer content with the status quo, he stirs us up for some reason. We see an injustice in society and we get stirred up. That's a holy discontent. So contentment isn't meant to just be laid back and kind of tripped out and not engaged with the world around us. Uh, contentment is entirely Different, And that's what we want to drive at. Proverbs 14 and verse 30 really nails it for us. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. What a great description of what envy does. And we feel it when we're just eaten, eaten from the inside out from envy. Proverbs 14 and verse 30. So what's the antidote to envy? Well, it's contentment, and I would say godly contentment is the antidote to envy. Now, there's lots of ways that we can define contentment, and I hope that you go home and kind of explore it, look it up, uh, find out what it means, and kind of drive toward contentment. Uh, but there's one gentleman, Jeremiah Burroughs. He was an old Puritan writer, and he's got a great definition for contentment. It's in his book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I love it. It's really hard to read because it's kind of old. Um, But that idea that contentment is precious, it's worth attaining, but it's rare. And so in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, that's a lot of words, and uh, perhaps we'll put it up on the screen later on, but Jeremiah Burroughs says a number of things about contentment that are really important here. He says that it's inward, that it's a gracious frame of spirit, and that it's something that submits to God's guidance. That's contentment. So contentment isn't kind of pursuing the elusive, simple life. That might be something that's of interest to you, but, but don't trust that to give us contentment. It's not about belonging to tiny house nation or giving up all our possessions even. Uh, it's not about these external things. Contentment is an attitude of the heart so that even when we have plenty or we have nothing, we're still content. There's a contentment of the heart that is driving toward. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, some of you will recognize that name. Uh, she gives another perspective. She says this true contentment on earth means asking less of this life because more is coming in the next. I love that. It's asking less of this life because more is coming in the next. That's fantastic. Okay, let's turn to Paul. Let's see what Paul has to say about contentment because he struggled with, with having lots and having absolutely nothing. How did he find contentment? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, he makes this claim. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's worth pursuing. It's worth finding out. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing we will be content with that. I know sometimes we say money can't buy happiness, and generally that's true, except if we don't have enough just to attain our basic needs, it's very hard to find happiness. But Paul is saying once those basic needs are met, uh, having more and more and more money doesn't equate to greater and greater and greater happiness. Right? We get that. And so godliness with contentment is great gain. In fact, Paul goes on in our passage that was read for us, Very beautifully, we read these words. I have learned, says Paul, to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Here's one point I don't want us to forget. Paul learned to be content, It didn't magically happen for him. God didn't suddenly zap him and make him content. Paul says, I learned. It was an act of discipleship. I was disciplined, and I learned what it means to be content and how to be content. I don't think Paul was naturally a content kind of person. He was always on the move. He was always stirred up about something. But he learned, he said, The secret of being content. And here's the amazing thing about the characters we find in the Bible. They're human. They're not superheroes. They're like you and me, the Bible says. Elijah was a man just like you and me, but he prayed and it rained. So pray. Well, Paul is a man just like you and me. He learned contentment. And if Paul learned it, we can learn it too. That's the encouragement that comes right out of this passage, right out of the gate. So we've already said that comparison is the enemy of contentment, but I'm going to flip that around a little bit because Paul does an interesting thing with comparison. Instead of trying to compare ourselves to others, Paul says we need to shift the comparison. We need to compare ourselves and our situation to something else. And I think that Paul learns contentment by shifting the comparison. And he does it in three ways. First of all, Paul invites us to compare ourselves to who we were. Not to others, but to who we were. Jordan Peterson's a fairly controversial figure. He wrote 12 Rules for Life, but I love this quote from him. He says, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. I love that. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Well, Paul takes that to the next level. He says in Colossians chapter 1 that once, remember, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, you see the comparison? Remember who you were. Remember who you were before God's grace. Remember who you were before you met Jesus, even if you were very young. Remember that you were full of guilt and you had shame. But now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So even though we sometimes don't feel that we're being a very good Christian or we don't feel that we're doing everything right, we have to understand that that's not the comparison. It's not about us, but it's about comparing what God has done for us. That once we were far from God... Once we were full of guilt and shame. But now, if you have met Jesus, you are free of guilt and shame. That's the comparison we need to make. That's the kind of comparison that can lead us to contentment because we know what God has done for us. Here's the second shift. We need to compare our status to what we have received in Christ. Paul had a lot of great things going for him before he met Jesus. Actually, his life, I think, was far better, just on paper, before he met Jesus. Uh, Paul had an incredible heritage. He says, "I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I had the the right lineage here, and I'm I'm proud of that in some ways." Uh, he goes on to say, "I had the right education. I had reasonable wealth. He was a Pharisee, and I haven't met yet." Uh, poor Pharisee in the Bible. And so he had reasonable wealth. Paul had status. He had power, didn't he? Paul basically had a license to kill. He was like 007, only in a bad way, in the New Testament. He had that much power. He had letters from Rome saying, kill who you want to, who named the name of Jesus. Paul had status and power and wealth and heritage and education. But listen to what he says In Philippians chapter 3, those things were important to me. They were important. He chased them. He built them up. He based his life on them, thinking that that's where satisfaction was. That's where happiness was. But then he says, but now I think they are worth nothing because of Jesus. Not only those things, but I think that all things are worth nothing compared to with the greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Do you see the comparison? He compared all the great things and and even good things. But when they're compared to knowing Jesus, they're worth nothing, really. It's like someone would put on the table before Paul all his wealth and his power and his status and his heritage. And on the other side of the table, he would put Jesus and he'd say, okay, Paul, choose Paul would choose Jesus every day of the week and twice on Sundays, right? Because all the rest, it's really worthless in comparison to the glory of Jesus and the glory of knowing Jesus. That's how revolutionary Paul's encounter was with the living Christ, that everything else just kind of faded away. It's not that we don't still need jobs and we don't, shouldn't have a bank account, but it's those things don't grip our lives in the same way. Once we come again and again to encounter the, the living Christ. Paul uses a, an interesting word in here in Greek that only um, occurs one time in the New Testament. It's uh, skubala. I don't even know if I'm saying it right. But it's an interesting word. And some people say Paul was swearing here uh, because he's using a profanity. Well, I don't think Paul's using a profanity, but he's using a very descriptive word. So this might be a little PG-13 for us. But this word doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. But it occurs elsewhere in the Greek writings, especially the medical journals. And the word skubala is actually used to describe human feces. And you're like, oh, I didn't need to know that. But I think we do because we have to see what Paul is saying. In a lot of our translations, it cleans it up for us. It says that all other things are like garbage or like trash or worthless. I think the old King James Version probably gets closest. It says, I count them as dung. That's the word. I count them all like feces. Even the things I thought for my life were so important that I was chasing forever. Once I met Jesus, all the rest just faded away. That's the comparison that Paul wants us to make. So we need to compare ourselves to who we were before God's grace. We need to compare our status, what we've tried to attain, to what we've actually received in Christ. But here's the third thing. We need to compare our struggles to the promise of what is still to come. That's the important thing. Uh, Paul experienced his fair share of struggles. We understand that. We've gone over some of that before. And yet he said this in Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He knew he had sufferings. He didn't deny it. He didn't avoid it. He grieved it. He even complained to God about his sufferings. He even asked God to remove his sufferings. All of that is legitimate. And that was Paul's experience. But in the end, he said, God's grace is sufficient for me now. And the glory that I'm heading toward is far greater than any suffering that I'll have right now. I mentioned Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know her story, look it up. It's quite remarkable. Uh, She had a diving accident when she was very young and she broke her neck. And she was left a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And in those early days after her accident, uh, she was depressed and angry, suicidal. All her life had been taken from her. But her story is one of how God's grace changed her life, transformed her, and how she's become one of the most influential people for the gospel of Jesus Christ in our generation. And that's why her quote, I'm going to quote it again, is so important. True contentment on earth means asking less of this life because more is coming in the next. That's Paul's attitude. That's the comparison. If somehow we can get a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of what God has promised, it will put other things into perspective, and that will lead to contentment. And that kind of contentment leads to happiness. So, what about Paul? Well, he saw that before he encountered Jesus, he was far from God. He was wrapped in his own guilt and shame. But now, the comparison, but now he is free. He saw that before he encountered Jesus, he was grasping at power and wealth and status. But now, in Christ, all those things are dung. They're worthless. He saw that before he encountered Jesus, he was reminded constantly of his own mortality with uncertainty as he faced death. But now, in Christ, he has hope beyond the grave. If we can even tap into those three comparisons, I think it will help us to learn contentment. So Paul said, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What was his secret? It's the very last line. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's the secret of contentment that we find in Paul. Well, some of you know the name Leo Tolstoy, and some of you have maybe read some of his works, Russian author. One of the the stories that he wrote that maybe not a lot of people have read is a short story, probably the most accessible story. You can look it up and find it online. In 1886, he wrote the story, How Much Land Does a Man Need?, How much land does a man require? That's the title of the story, and it's also the first line in the story. How much land does a man require? And it traces his main character, Pahom. Pahom is a peasant. And one day in conversation with a number of people, he begins to compare his situation to the situation of others. And Pahom eventually says, you know, if I just had plenty of land, I wouldn't be afraid of anything. I wouldn't even be afraid of the devil himself. Well, typical of Tolstoy, the devil was there, and he was sitting on the stove behind our character Pahom, and as he was sitting on the stove, he decided to take up Pahom's challenge. And he says to Pahom, I will make sure you get land, but in the end, I'm going to take something from you. And so Pahom goes out, and he begins to work hard, and he begins to acquire land, and that's great. Things are going well for a Short season, but then he begins to get very protective of his, of his land, and he realizes if he just has a little more land, he'll have more power to protect his land, and so he begins to accumulate more and more, and then eventually he runs into conflict with his neighbors, and he wants even more land, and so he hears of a group of people called the Bashkirs, I think they're Turkish people, and and he hears that maybe they're easy to deceive. And so he goes to them because he knows they have tons and tons of land. And he thinks, if I can just strike a deal with them, I can get more land, have more power, more status, and I won't be afraid of anything in the world. And so he goes to them, and they strike an interesting deal. They say, for a thousand rubles, which really isn't very much, for a thousand rubles, you can have all the land that you want that you can walk around in one day. So they say to him, start at sunrise, and all the land that you can walk around by sunset when you come back to the starting point is yours to keep. It's kind of like one of those grocery shows where it's like all the food you can get in uh, 30 seconds is yours to keep. So you can imagine what our character does. What does he do? Does he walk around nicely? No, he runs. And he goes, and he's panicked, and he's trying to get as much land as he can. And he suddenly realizes that the sun is about to set, and he's not back to the starting point. So he runs all the way back to get to the starting point, makes it just in time, and drops dead. Just when he's about to celebrate his great victory, getting all his land. And so here's the moral of the story. His servant comes and digs a grave six feet long and buries Pahom. What's the moral of the story? Well, the question is, how much land does a man need? Six feet. (laughs) Now, the story isn't really about land and acquiring land. We understand that, right? If your property is larger than six feet, don't feel guilty when you go home. Uh, but, But it is a story about this pursuit of happiness, about pursuing things. When we're driven by that sense of greed, or driven by that sense of comparison, or driven even by hatred, or despising others, when we're driven by those things to try and find happiness, it will end in destruction. It just will. That's what the Bible calls chasing the wind. You won't catch it. And so a constant state of happiness will always be just out of reach, unless... Unless, and this is the good news of the gospel, because I think God has solved this problem for us. God has said to us through his servant, Paul, shift our focus. Instead of pursuing happiness, pursue love. Practice gratitude and learn to be content. And then, and only then, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you came to us in the person of your son, Jesus. And thank you that we are different because of him. That we know that once we were enemies and aliens and strangers, but now we've been brought near because of the blood of Christ. Help us to live in that reality, that you will provide all of our needs in Jesus Christ and that you provide for us even beyond the grave with the hope of glory for those who trust in your Son. Thank you for these promises. Help us to rest in them and to be happy and content and at peace in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.